Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. This interview will be, unlike others, uh, will not examine healthcare policy per se. Instead, Dr. William Rogers will discuss his experience providing healthcare services for the homeless. It's my privilege to welcome Dr. Rogers. Thank you for your time. Thank you, David. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Great. Let me begin, as always, with some background. While estimates vary widely, several million Americans experience homelessness, or about 1% of the population experience homelessness in a given year. The problem has particularly worsened, of course, over the past few years with the downturn in the economy. Most homeless, far and away, or 90-plus percent, are single adults. However, a small percent are part of families, and some are unaccompanied minors. As I noted in this podcast introduction, the homeless suffer substantial health care problems. Again, half have one or more chronic health condition, two in five are estimated to have a mental health diagnosis, one-fourth suffer substance abuse, and one-third are alcohol-addicted. Since we're talking about uh, Dr. Rogers' services in Alexandria, Virginia, let me just make one policy note, and that is per the ACA's expansion of, the, uh, of Medicaid to 133%, uh, currently, the state of Virginia, or at least the governor, opposes the expansion, which of course would benefit uh, potentially at least the homeless in the state of Virginia. The Virginia legislature is out of session, and there is a committee to study expanding Medicaid. However, there is no movement um, uh, regarding the committee's work uh, presently. So with all that, uh, let's begin. Lastly, too, of course, Dr. Rogers' bio is posted, of course, uh, on the website. So with that, Bill, let me ask you first, how did you become involved or interested in providing health care for the homeless? Well, in 1996, um, I was uh, running the emergency department at Alexandria Hospital. The carpenter shelter at the time was in a sort of forlorn warehouse uh, in Alexandria and um, was struggling but uh, providing residential care for uh, homeless people in Alexandria. And they had a clinic which was not very well organized. A couple of primary care physicians in Alexandria were occasionally there. And um, I found out about it, and, and I think one of the primary care physicians asked me if I'd cover one of, the, one of the days, and I said yes. Well, at the time, because I had the emergency department contract, my emergency physicians were very enthusiastic to help me out, and together we were able to cover... Uh, a day every week without any problem at all. And um, then we moved into a nicer building, the, the Carpenter Shelter did, it's the old DMV building in Alexandria, and it's a very nice building and, and we were given dedicated space to, to have our clinic in. And we got better and better organized. Um, we stopped using samples to provide our patients with medications and we set up a, ph a pharmacy. and. And, and provided our patients with medications for free. We, we thought that was really a good idea because the sample medications were so expensive that it, when the patients left the shelter, they weren't able to continue to take the medications that they were on. So um, we were clicking along really nicely and I had a lot of doctors and then I left Alexandria and uh, the enthusiasm for my uh, former employees uh, diminished rather dramatically. So. From that time on, for the next 12 years, it was pretty hard for me because I didn't have much help 
Um, my pediatrician, who took care of me in 1953, uh, who had retired, uh, did help out for a while, but then Bob let his license expire, so I was sort of alone until uh, three years ago when I joined the faculty at Georgetown. And since I've been at Georgetown, the Georgetown staff have just been wonderful. And so I have a bunch of nurses and nurse practitioners from Georgetown, and we've really had sort of a renaissance there uh, in the clinic, and it's been very gratifying. And I love seeing young nurses and physicians get involved and, and, and see the happiness in their face when they realize what a wonderful thing they're doing for, for our patients. Well, uh, perfect timing in the last three years, particularly in context of the economy. Let, let me ask you about um, your understanding of the magnitude of the problem. So since you've been doing this almost 20 years now, wh what have you seen uh, in the population? Well, it, in our uh, particular population in Alexandria um, over the past 20 years, uh, we're a family shelter. Uh, we're a back-to-work, get-your-life-together shelter. Um, everybody's drug tested, everybody has to be sober, there are a lot of rules, um, everybody has to find a job, and once they find a job, the money that they earn is put into escrow for a security deposit, uh, their kids are all in school, um, it's, it's a very tough program, and it always has been, and so the homeless population largely that I'm caring for is hardly representative of the larger homeless population. Um, but in that population, um, you know, what I've seen is a, a pretty dramatic growth in the number uh, who need our services when the economy uh, went south. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it was less dramatic in the D.C. area because we were protected by the large federal employment here than it was in many parts of the United States. But we did see a big increase in need for our services. And then the other thing that we've seen over the past 20 years has been that um, housing has really become unaffordable um, in the easy commuting distance to Alexandria. So we find these patients jobs, or they find jobs, in the D.C. metro area, um, but then they have a hard time finding affordable housing uh, that allows them to keep, keep the job. So that's one of the big challenges of this shelter, and we have some transitional housing that we've purchased and we have a very aggressive uh, support system to help um, help these residents uh, make the transition from the shelter to their own stable uh, housing. Interestingly, these patients generally remain uninsured despite finding employment, and I'm very excited that that may change in January. But for the time being, we're continuing to provide them for free provide them with free services even after they're discharged from the shelter. And we've got several patients we've been taking care of. Uh, one in particular I can think of, we've been taking care of uh, her since uh, 2006. And she still comes to us and gets her antihypertensives and her medications. And um, she's actually in nursing school now and expects Great. to finish in a year. So that's a real success story for us. I have to ask, of course, how, how are you funded? Well, the um, shelter has a full-time person who does nothing but uh, pursue grants. And uh, the past year, we've been financed uh, primarily from a, a grant from Kaiser. <clears throat> and um, really, our only big cost is medications. We'll spend, we spend about uh, $1,500 a month on medications. And that's, that's the primary cost of running the clinic because they're no other associated costs. And another detail, 
this is housing. What's the term of housing for your patients? You mean how long do they stay in the right, shelter? Yes. Um, they will stay in the shelter for as long as four months. Um, I would say probably the average is more like two months. Um, but um, if they're currently employed and they're um, you know, following all the rules and there's a good reason that they're not quite ready to leave yet because of uh, difficulties finding housing or, or, or something else, you know, the, the, the shelter's flexible about keeping them on. But of course, there's always demand for the beds. So to the extent that we can get people into stable uh, situations outside the shelter, where we encourage people to make that transition. And we do continue to support them, not only the clinic, but the shelter does continue to support them. We have about 170 people out in the community now who continue to return for our adult education courses, for social support and, and other uh, support that the shelter provides. Since you did use the word demand, so let me ask about the supply and demand. So because we're, uh, our services are restricted to those who are prepared to comply with all the rules, uh, we, uh, the shelter manages about 250 individuals a year uh, who pass through and successfully uh, complete the program. About a third of those are children because it is a family shelter. Um, and uh, then we have a homeless shelter, uh, well, a, a structure for people who aren't prepared to deal with all the, all the rules, where we have a VA drug counselor and people can get their mail and take a shower and wash their clothes, but they can't spend the night there except when we're in what we call hypothermia. And on those nights, they can sleep on the floor in that and that's um, called David's Place, and, and we serve about another 300 patients, or another 300 citizens a year at David's Place. But they don't actually live there. They just use it as a place, as I said, to receive their checks and take a shower and launder their clothes and things like that during the day. And you're providing them medical care? Well, we try to, but the majority of them are alcoholics and mentally ill, and, and quite frankly, my experience has been that, that they're... Uh, very, very difficult population to to get any kind of compliance. Um, and it's very sad because some of them have severe hypertension and uh, COPD and things like that, but because their alcoholism and their mental illness, they don't return for appointments and, and we lose them pretty quickly to follow up. Well, that's where I wanted to go, and that is uh, my question concerning what are the health care issues that you see amongst your patients? Well, there's sort of two... Uh, groups of two kinds of problems. The, the medical problems, which are primarily diabetes, hypertension, and uh, you know, lung disease, um, which we can treat. Then there are the preventative needs um, for the females, obviously, pap smears, mammograms for the uh, men, uh, prostate screening, and for both groups, you know, colonoscopy and things like that. These are much more challenging for us. Uh, we have found a program that allows us to provide mammography to females, and we do uh, wellness exams and pap smears in-house. We do have uh, laboratory uh, capabilities, but we haven't found a way to, to provide colonoscopy screening um, for, the, for the patients who qualify for that, and that's been a source of frustration. One of the reasons I'm looking forward to January of 2013. 
fourteen. The, uh, or two thousand fourteen. And then the other issue, of course, is is surgical needs. You know, patients with hernias or patients with, you know, herniated discs or other things that would require surgical treatment, basically are are out of luck. We we just don't have any way to 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 do that. Well, you can't do it, so that begs the question, what success have you had in referring? I mean, are there hospitals that you're working cooperatively with? No. Nobody's, nobody's interested in, in these kinds of patients. We had, uh, or these kinds of problems, there's a, a clinic in Alexandria, which is supported by the city, called Casey Clinic. Uh, and Casey has uh, seen their funding dramatically cut. And uh, they were, they do still take care of the HIV patients and some patients with a lot of medical conditions, but um, there's just no way for me to to find a surgeon who will repair a hernia for somebody uh, or something like that in the D.C. area. Dental's also a challenge, but there is a dental clinic that the city has and, and they do, although they have a very long waiting list, they do uh, provide some sort of semi-emergent dental care for, for my patients. So um, the assumption here then is that all your patients are uninsured, so That's including Medicaid. We don't take care of Medicaid patients. We don't take care of patients with commercial okay. insurance. Okay. So let me just push you then. So to refer out for a surgical procedure, that's been not possible. So the question is, they just don't get the surgery and then they... Oh, yeah. I mean, a, a, a story that sort of um, ex- exemplifies this. I had a... I was in the clinic, of, I guess, eight or nine months ago, and a big, strapping 40-year-old man comes in and asked me, who looked the picture of health, he said, do you do social security disability exams? And I said, well, I, I don't generally, but, you know, I'll do anything that I can to help you. I said, what's the problem? And he had uh, worked for a moving company in Alexandria, which explained his heavily muscled physique. And um, also at the apartment that he lived in had um, sort of become de facto the peacemaker. And, and, um, and I think there were a number of people in the apartment that he knew quite well because of that role. One afternoon he'd finished work and he was talking to a friend and they heard some carrying on, and they knew that it was one of the apartment residents who had a drinking problem fighting with her boyfriend. So they went up, and, and he got it all calmed down and, and then went back outside. It was a pretty day, and he and his friend were talking. And the woman came out of the apartment complex and stabbed him uh, while they were talking. He put up his arm to shield himself, and the knife went through his arm into his chest. So we did what the United States does great. You know, the helicopters showed up, the ambulances showed up, the fire trucks showed up, the police were there, the dogs were there. And this guy gets flown to Fairfax, and he had, um, you know, the, the big trauma resuscitation and the echocardiogram and the vascular studies and everything else. And it turned out that he didn't have any life-threatening injuries, so the everybody's filtered back to their departments, and the ER doc is stitching up his arm, and, and he holds his arm up, and he obviously has a wrist drop. He can't extend his wrist, can't extend his fingers, and he says to the emergency physician, he said, what do I do about this? And he said, oh, you've cut your radial nerve. That's very serious. That's going to have to be repaired, um, and I'm going to give you the name of a surgeon, and you need to call him tomorrow, and, and, and he needs to get you into the operating room in the next seven days and get this nerve repaired. 
So the guy goes home and he calls the surgeon's office and speaks to the front desk and the front desk says, oh yeah, that's very important. We need to see you tomorrow morning in the office. What kind of insurance do you have? And he said, well, I don't have any insurance. And so the office person said, well, you still need to come in. Absolutely, just bring $250 for the initial consultation, which he couldn't do. So he didn't go. So he went to Alexandria, got his stitches removed. And while he's getting the stitches removed, he says to the doctor, he said, what do I do about this wrist? And the doctor says, oh, my gosh, you haven't gotten that fixed. You need to call this surgeon up and get it fixed. And so he goes home and he calls the second surgeon up and they say, sure, oh, my gosh, you should have gotten that thing fixed right away. But, you know, there's still probably hope. Make sure you come in first thing tomorrow morning. What kind of insurance do you have? And he said, I don't have any insurance. He said, well, just make sure you come in and just bring $250 in cash for the consultation. So obviously he couldn't do it. So now he's been laid off by the moving company. He's in the shelter, homeless, um, and his nerve now is too late to repair. And so for the rest of his life, his dominant hand, he'll be unable to write. He'll be unable to extend his wrist or his fingers. And he's now disabled for the rest of his life. Um, that's sort of a classic example of the barriers that these poor people are facing because of the fact that they don't have health insurance. Um, um, let me push you on this still. Hospitals are certainly not for private hospitals are required to provide some percent or some amount of charity care. What's been your experience in that regard? <clears throat> um, well, hospitals provide a lot of charity care. Um, most of the hospitals um, truly are providing most of that care because of their EMTALA obligation. Uh, in the emergency department. And they do like to brag about the total value generally calculated based on charges rather than based on costs. The total value of those services that they're, quote, providing as a charity to the community. Um, my personal experience uh, has been that the uh, enthusiasm of most hospital systems for going out and seeking other opportunities to serve the community has been uh, less than exuberant. And I understand that there, um, some of them are in challenging business environments. But um, I, I've, I, I, I can't say that uh, in Alexandria, I think that I can pick the phone up and uh, have a patient's problems taken care of um, like this fellow's problems. The other thing is, too, you know, the, the, the practitioners. I mean, I, I was very frustrated with the emergency physician, and I make this point with my residents at Georgetown all the time, because he should have realized that this uninsured patient was not going to have an easy time getting the surgery that he needed. And I, honestly, if I had seen this patient in Georgetown, I would have admitted him to the hospital, and, and then he would have gotten the surgery. And so, you know, I make this point with my residents all the time, you know, don't write a person a prescription for a $130 antibiotic for their urinary tract infection. If they don't have any way to pay for it, they'll be back and they'll be in the intensive care unit with the infection now in their kidneys because you weren't thinking about, you know, barriers to access. And this is a classic example. This fellow, in my opinion, should have been admitted to the hospital and he would have had his surgery done and he would have had a huge bill, but at least he would have had a functional arm. Okay, you, let's go back to uh, this, the subpopulation you provide some services to. You mentioned through this David's facility in Alexandria. You mentioned certain frustrations about uh, their complex medical condition. 
What's your assessment of the level of services they're receiving relative to how adequate or not they are? Well, th- these are the alcoholics and the severely mentally ill um, homeless. Um, they, they, the, the mentally ill patients can get access to care both in D.C. and in Virginia. Um, there are mental health clinics which will provide medications and, and some counseling. Um, but many of them are so dysfunctional that they don't take advantage of that care. And I see it all the time at Georgetown. I'll be at Georgetown tonight. And all night long, the D.C. ambulances are bringing in unconscious, urine-soaked, homeless people, um, many of them mentally ill, all of them intoxicated, and they're not uh, accessing services because they're so dysfunctional that they don't see the need or, or, or even they can't even sort of cognitively recognize the value to themselves of this. And this is, this is and I, I'm so old, I mean, I've been practicing for 32 years that I remember the change uh, from the days of institutionalization. And, you know, I, I personally think that it's very sad because at one time these patients may have been incarcerated, maybe that's the wrong word, but at least they were clean and fed and clothed. Um, now they're out in the rain and snow and drunk and dying of entirely preventable causes. And they've basically been sort of ignored and, and unseen by the vast majority of, of uh, Americans. Okay, let me ask this possibly as a wrap-up question. So where do you see uh, Carpenters, where do you, where do you see it going? What, what do you hope to accomplish, or what else do you think you can do in providing better care? Well, I'm very excited about January. I'm very worried about the resistance to the expansion of Medicaid because most of my uh, patients will fall into the Medicaid-eligible group, um, you know, income up to 130% of the federal poverty level. So if the state decides not to expand Medicaid, I'm still going to have a lot of disenfranchised patients. Um, but I'm very excited about, about the, you know, expansion of coverage because for the first time, these patients will really be able to get good care, access to specialists, the kind of preventative services that they need, and, you know, the Band-Aid that I provide will become unnecessary. So this would mean de facto that you would stop seeing these patients because they're now seeing those providing Medicaid services. Yeah, so our plan is um, in October when the marketplace opens, uh, we're going to be very aggressive in uh, educating the residents and the staff about how the marketplace works and uh, getting those residents who qualify to use the marketplace to sign up for coverage to begin in January. If the Medicaid expansion occurs in Virginia, then we plan on closing uh, as a health provider uh, in January, but remain very active as a source of support for residents who have not yet taken advantage of the expansion. If Medicaid doesn't expand in the state of Virginia, then we'll have to stay open because we'll have to continue to provide our Band-Aid services for, to people who are uh, below 130% of the federal poverty level. Okay. I think with that, Dr. Rogers, we're at our time boundary. So let me say uh, I'm very appreciative for your time and thank you for your comments. And maybe we have good news in January and you'll be out of a job in a sense. I'm keeping my fingers crossed, not because I've 
don't enjoy doing the work, but because I really think that, that these patients deserve better. All right. Thank you again. Thanks.